0: Good evening, my name is Emily Duffy and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, I'm thrilled to welcome you here tonight for the first event of our lecture series, Marriage and the Family Today. This fall, the church will experience two significant events related to marriage and the family. In September, Philadelphia will host the World Meeting of Families. Then in October, the 14th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops on the family will convene in Rome. In recognition of this important time in the church, We will be gathering for a three-part lecture series to explore the most critical issues for marriage and family life today. Tonight's event, titled Reconsidering Marriage, will explore the pastoral and doctrinal questions surrounding the indissolubility of marriage. Next Thursday, on September 10th, we will discuss children, specifically looking at the effects that artificial reproductive technologies and divorce have on them. The final event, on September 17th, will be a conversation on gender and homosexuality. Here in Washington, we are blessed to have the John Paul II Institute, a true powerhouse of philosophers and theologians who are thinking through the essential questions of marriage and the family. Faculty members from the John Paul II Institute are the featured speakers in our lecture series. Tonight, I'm delighted to introduce Father Antonio Lopez and Professor Nicholas Healy. Father Lopez is the Dean of the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. He teaches and writes in the areas of Trinitarian theology, metaphysics, the sacramentality of marriage, and theological anthropology. He is the author of numerous books and serves as editor of Humanum. Father Lopez received his PhD from Boston College. Professor Nicholas Healy received his doctorate from Oxford University with a dissertation on the theology of von In addition to serving as an assistant professor at the John Paul II Institute, Professor Healy is the editor of the North American edition of Communio magazine. He is currently working on the theology of the Eucharist and Christian states of life. This evening we will begin with remarks from Father Lopez. Please help me to welcome our speakers tonight.
1: Uh, thank you all very much Emily thank also for hosting this hosting us tonight and then also this uh, this series i will uh, speak about uh, 20 25 minutes on the, um, one one issue that is normally not uh, not discussed and uh, the nature of m- marriage is indissolubility, and then, uh, um, yeah. and then uh, Professor Healy will follow, follow up with a more specific issues. Right? So for the sake of precision, I decided to, to write. So hopefully, you and I will be done more or less about the same time. Mm. So the 14th Synod of Bishops has uh, this official theme, the vocation and mission of the family in the church and in the contemporary world. This, uh, this title aptly captures Pope Francis' concern to help men and women live family life more fully and to invite the Church to reflect on both the nature of the family and the light that Christ's revelation of divine and human love sheds on several circumstances contemporary families must face. Much discussion has already taken place. Universal access to the bishop's interviews during last year's Extraordinary Synod And to both the uh, Relatio Synodi, which is a document that gathers propositions voted on by the Synod Bishops, and the Instrumentum Laboris, which is a document used as a tool or resource to guide the work of the upcoming Synod, has allowed everyone to comment, wonder, or uh, wail. One of the most heated debates revolves around the possibility of giving communion to divorced and civilly remarried couples, rightly so. This question touches upon a circumstance that causes much suffering, divorce. It also regards a thicket of crucial issues, such as the nature of the Eucharist and hence the nature of the Church, the real content of marriage and family life, the possibility of admitting divorce in the Catholic Church, the relation between society and the Church and between truth, justice, and mercy. Tonight, I wish to look at only one of these questions in order for us not only to see more clearly what is at stake in the current conversation, but also to rediscover the beauty of married life and napsal love. So what is this question? It regards our our fundamental understanding of what marriage is. The pragmatic and emotionalist character of our society disposes us to be sympathetic to suffering and to make haste to fix problems. We thus very quickly focus on what to do or how to help those who find themselves in irregular marital situations. It is indeed good to help and care for others. Yet, can we really help if we don't understand the situation we are dealing with, that is, if our understanding of marriage doesn't correspond to its reality? Doesn't finding a true answer to the question of whether divorced and civilly remarried Catholics can receive communion require us first to ask why a valid, that is, ratified and consummated marriage is indissoluble in the first place? We could put the question in these terms. In what sense is St. Paul's affirmation that love never ends true for both God's love and human nuptial love? As we take for granted that this unendiness also regards human love. We should recall that when the apostles heard Christ, state that marriage's indissolubility admits, admits no exceptions. They could not help but utter. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is not expedient to marry. So I divided my, my talk in three parts. The first one is, is the longest one. So. You may remember the reason Jesus gave to explain why divorce was allowed in Judaism. For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it wasn't so. We are so used to hearing that marriage is simply a relation between a man and a woman with any reference without any reference to the spouse's relation to God, that we may believe that hardness of heart simply means lack of civility, flexibility or sensitivity all of which could be overcome with a little more education, prayer, and by the practice of certain virtues, such as patience, charity, hope, depends on the case. Instead, scripture uses this term to indicate a crucial aspect of man's relation with God. The heart, in fact, is the place that defines man as man, that is, in his constitutive relation with God. St. Paul explains that in the case of the Greeks, hardness of heart indicates the permanence of a guilty ingratitude towards God, who reveals himself in creation. In case of the Jews, it it also refers to the resilient ingratitude towards a God who has called them from slavery, made them his own, and given them the law so that they can live and walk authentically. Their ingratitude lies hidden under the presumption that one can obey the law out of his own resources and thus be saved by his own strength. In both cases, hardness of heart refers to man's persistent reluctance to welcome in his heart God's presence and salvific will and actions. In what sense is this enduring resistance to God, to seeking and following him, related to marriage, we could ask? Our answers will be partial unless, as Jesus indicated, we turn to the beginning, that is, to the creation of man and to what God wanted when he instituted marriage. So let's look at the beginning for a little bit. The second creation account in Genesis tells us that God made a helper fit for Adam because it is not good that the man should be alone. When he said these words, God had already created Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden and instructed him to till it, keep it, and eat of every tree, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam knew God. If being created, man most fundamentally is relation with God, and God is everything, we may ask, why does Adam need a helper fit for him? Why is Eve created? The answer to this not-so-obvious question will shed light on the mystery of marriage and its relation to God. A beginning of an answer is given a little bit earlier in the first account of creation. God wishes to make man in his image and likeness. Let us first recall that image doesn't mean picture. It means instead a certain participation in the being and life of God who is a triune communion of persons, so Christ revealed. If we then read the two creation accounts together, we can say that if he lacked (coughs) if, a fitting partner with whom he could live in personal communion, man would not image God as fully as possible. In other terms, had he been created alone, man would not have been given to participate in God's divine life as a person who could have a personal relation with the triune God. If he were alone, man could not grow to be ever more like God without ceasing to be himself. With this, of course, I am not saying that a human being is incomplete unless he's married. Every man and woman is a human being by nature, yet man is created as male and female. Why is being created for a communion of persons part of being made in the image of God? Mm. With the help of uh, John Paul II and other theologians, we can now offer three reasons. So the first, only spiritual beings know and love And since man's being spirit is essential to his image in God, so is his capacity to know and to love. Yet knowing and loving comprise always and ultimately a personal event. That is, knowing and loving takes place within a relation between persons. When Adam was tasked with naming every living creature, he was asked to call upon them, that is, to allow them to be in relation among themselves, with man, and through man, with God. Yet this naming would not have been complete if Adam could not have called and been called upon by someone equal to him. His knowing and loving would not have been full if he had not known and loved and been known and loved by someone of his same nature." Second reason, one of the most remarkable characteristics of God, so scripture tells us, is that God is omnipotent. He gives life, both in himself, and by loving into being what was not before outside of himself. His omnipotence appears in history as infinite fruitfulness. Jesus, in fact, constantly refers to God's infinite fruitfulness to reveal the nature of God's being, which is love, and of his kingdom. How could man participate in God's life be in his image if he were not given the capacity to be fruitful, to participate in the giving of life, and if he were not called to experience the gratuitousness of life and how could man be fruitful if he were not created as male and female and asked to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it every living thing that moves upon the earth it is indeed the case that man procreates only with the help of god as eve learned but this help comes to him because man is sexually differentiated Third reason, would it have been possible for man to experience the fullness of love if he had remained alone? If he had, perhaps, Adam could have dedicated himself to tilling and keeping the garden. In that case, he would have been a little bit like a platonic good, that is, self-diffusive. He would have given himself to his work and rested content with this, his art, which, along with God's glory, would have been reflected in the Garden of Eden. As a self-diffusive good, however, doesn't create. Thus, in his work, Adam would not be imaging the Christian creator God. Furthermore, if we look at uh, Christ's revelation, the God of Jesus Christ is tri-personal, a communion of reciprocal indwelling. Christ, therefore, revealed that God created and redeemed man so that man may first be one as Christ and the Father are one. And second, call upon God as Father. In this unity of adoptive sonship, man can be himself by living for God and with God. Revealing his relation to the Father and opening it up to man, Christ revealed also the ungraspable depth of what human experience merely tastes. Love is complete when it is freely reciprocated and when lovers dwell in each other. Had Eve not been fastened from Adam's reef and given to him by God, Adam would not have known what it meant to give himself to someone of his own nature. Furthermore, he would not have known what it meant to be received by a love equal to his own. Whoever loves not only wants to give himself to his beloved, but also desires to be received by the one he loves. Without Eve, Adam would not have known that receiving, and hence depending, It's also a good, and that without it, love is not love. He would not have been able to know, at the level proper to the finite creature, the reciprocation and the indwelling that characterizes divine love. These three reasons, the personal character of a spiritual being's knowing and loving, fruitfulness, and the reciprocal indwelling proper to love, help us to see that man's greatness as the image of God is inseparable from God's creating him male and female. Through the sexual difference, man is able to more clearly image the communion of love that God is, and thus to live and reveal God's triune life. <coughs> These reasons also allow us to realize that natural human love, the fruitful and unifying love between a man and a woman, although infinitely unlike God's love, exists only in relation with God. Spouses knowing and loving each other takes place only in their being known by God, who calls them to know and love each other in him. Their fruitfulness is a participation in God's never-ending power to give life. And their unity allows them to participate in the giving and receiving of love without losing their respective identities. For the spouses, albeit equal, remain irreducible to each other. Each one is determined by his or her unique relation with God. It is no wonder then that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, their napsal relation was fractured. Power not abiding love and communion dominates. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you," says Genesis. Furthermore, enmity with God also meant that fraternal relations were ruined. No longer able to see God's fatherhood, brothers like Cain and Abel compete for the father's love and kill each other. Man is born to die, and out of fear that God may be a deceiver, gives death. Hardness of heart, that unwillingness to acknowledge God for what he is and to let him and his plan for man be, causes man to believe that love doesn't define his finite being and that he is no longer capable of loving his spouse over time in a way similar and dissimilar to God's. It is not that marriage instituted at the beginning of creation is eliminated, rather because of his hardness of heart, his rejection of God, man cannot welcome the other fully. This original fracture between God, man, and the world, and between man and woman, has acquired in our Western culture, our way of being in the world, a radical depth. It renders marriage's indissolubility even more incomprehensible and divorce even more painful. Let me remind you of some of these culture's key features. The body is objectified and treated as a tool, separated from what is considered to be most properly human, the spirit. The spirit is conceived mainly as a freedom that defines itself as it sees fit and relates to everything only as it chooses. Thanks also to contraception, man detaches love from conjugal intimacy, sex, and separates these these two from fruitfulness. One can love without having sex, have sex without loving, and nowadays have children without either love or sexual intimacy. Today, we are also governed by the unfounded belief that one can choose to identify his own gender apart from consideration of the body, which is therefore conceived in merely biological terms abstracted from the person himself. We all know how much suffering all these fracturing causes. The breaking apart of the three elements that constitute nuptial love, the unity of love, sexual difference, and fruitfulness, is simply the outcome of replacing the image of God with a new image that man fashions for himself. The fracturing, in turn, reinforces the rejection of God. Needless to say, if the person conceives himself today as sheer spirit or freedom, having only a secondary relation to his or her own body, then the basic human relations, such as sonship, fatherhood, motherhood, napsality or brotherhood, cannot but be secondary to the person. This anthropology, anthropology in which man conceives himself or tries to be like God but without God, reduces marriage to a ridiculous caricature, a romantic love subject to the emotions one experiences, which as emotions escape the spirit's power to determine itself. The one who loves, after all, is in the hands of the beloved, not in his own hands. In this, our modern view, marriage is nothing but a temporary association brought into existence when two fundamentally equal and autonomous human wills feel the desire to live an intimate life together for the purpose of helping each other fulfill their personal lives. Judith Wallerstein suggests that this perception of love and marriage has, quote, created a new kind of society that offers greater freedom and more opportunities for many adults, end quote. Sociologists and historians of marriage, like Stephanie Kuntz, are aware that this perception of love as intimacy is inseparable from a culture of divorce. They all think that although marriage has become a very fragile and insurmountable transient reality, we are now better off. Of course, no one wants to go through a divorce and no one wishes it for anyone else. Yet the appreciation of the self as autonomous will and of love as transient, irrational feeling is so harmonious with our current liberal democracy that despite the fact that this conception of love contains the seeds of its own demise, Very few are willing to put it into question. To do so would require that one completely reconceive the contemporary horizon of meaning and the concrete social way of life in Western liberal democracies. So on to the the second point. Marriage as a sacrament of redemption. In such a culture, the claim that human love can be indissoluble, that is, faithful over time, in a way analogous to God's love, Will continue to elicit the same reaction as that given by the apostles when Jesus confirmed the absolute character of marriage's indissolubility. This incredulity will remain until we see that God's love is faithful over time, that is, that He doesn't shun the one who hates and rejects Him, and more importantly, when we see that God's faithfulness can make possible anew and without bypassing human freedom the original. Indissolubility that he intended for human nuptial love. Were man not to credit God's faithful love, he would continue to think that indissolubility is the great and lofty ideal to which spouses aspire, but which does not regard the very nature of marriage, only how spouses live it. To put this view synthetically, indissolubility regards morality, basically human action. Not the very nature of married love. Yet, if we contend that indissolubility is simply moral, a human doing, why do we not just bring this logic to its conclusion and say that love as such, hence God, doesn't remain true over time and that marital faithfulness is just an exception to what is indeed the case by nature? Why not accept that fidelity is the exception to the rule love fails? In the Old Testament, God proved numerous times that he is faithful to his own promise. Yet the Father's faithfulness was not reciprocated fully by a human being until the beloved Son of the Father, unforeseeably to man, became flesh and offered himself on the cross for man's salvation. Through through his obedience unto death, Christ reciprocated divinely and humanly the Father's love in a way that made it possible for every human being to reciprocate this same love anew. Mary, in anticipation of the merits of Christ, was given to say yes to God's asking. God asks. Mm -hmm. In his unique way, Christ's offering of himself revealed that God's love is faithful and thus gave men the gift of divine sonship. This, then, is love, the gift of self to the end without remainder, a gift according to which one is for, with, and in the other. God allows man to reciprocate his love and be united with him through Christ, because there is no access to the Father if not through the Son, and because in the Trinity, relations cannot be multiplied. Belonging through baptism to the body of Christ, which is the Church, man can receive God's love, and what is even more surprising, give God to God, when through the Spirit, he gives himself to the Father in Christ. The communion with man that God seeks and establishes in Christ is not only filial. It is also nuptial. The church is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, says the book of Revelation. Christ died for her, as Paul tells us, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. The union with the church that Christ establishes is such that the church is also described, not metaphorically but sacramentally, and hence ontologically, as the body of Christ, who is also her head. When St. Paul exclaims at the end of this passage, which is the classic text for understanding marriage, he says, This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. He is also giving us light to see the mystery of marriage in its full depth. The communion of life and love that Adam and Eve were created to enjoy finds in the unity of Christ and the Church its final reason. Man is created in the image of God as male or female because he is called to enter a communion of persons that participates in and reveals God's love and that has in Christ's union with the Church its concrete and eternally desired realization. There is an analogous relation between the bond that unites Christ and the Church and the sacramental conjugal bond between husband and wife. Understanding this relation will help us grasp why nuptial conjugal love is indissoluble. So then, My last uh, point, what is indissolubility then? The mystery of Christ's unity with the Church is present in conjugal sacramental love. The conjugal love of two baptized Christians is therefore the real sign of Christ's union with the Church. Real doesn't mean that conjugal love represents the union of Christ with the Church, but remains outside of it. Rather, it means that sacramental marriage has an intrinsic relation with the mystery of the union of Christ with the Church. It participates, by grace, in this union, and hence in the love of Christ for the Church. It is this participation that gives spouses the task of living conjugal love, like Christ loves the Church and the Church loves Christ. Let us briefly consider the Eucharist in order to understand better in what sense the conjugal bond participates in Christ's nuptial love for the Church. So in the Eucharist, we have three things. We have the species of bread and wine that, when consecrated, second, really signify the body and blood of Christ, although their appearance doesn't change. And third, when consumed by the believer, form a unity with him. Christ in the believer and the believer in Christ. Analogically speaking, in marriage we have three things. The exchange of vows of a man and a woman. They freely enter into what is given to them and is greater than them. The communion of life and love, second, signifies something that cannot be seen with our bodily eyes. What is this? The definitive reciprocal belonging that the church calls conjugal bond. This bond is not something that can be exclusively reduced to the will of the spouses and how they treat each other. It changes those who consent to it. They, in fact, become spouses, husband and wife, until the end of their lives. Yet, third thing, the conjugal bond must be lived in conjugal charity. It must be lived in such a way that allows the spouses to grow in holiness, that is, in their filial and common relation with God. Sacramentality of marriage is this conjugal bond that is a real participation in Christ's love for the church. The reciprocal nuptial indwelling of the spouses is deep down a participation of this being one body of Christ and the church and a loving each other in in Christ's love for the church. The exchange of vows takes very little time, hmm? one or two minutes. Yet this exchange affects a permanent bond, a communion of life and love that transforms the man and the woman into spouses and makes them be the real sign of Christ's union with the Church. Marriage, in fact, is a quasi-consecration. In the Catholic Church, it is the spouses that are the ministers of marriage. Yet they are so by virtue of their baptism, which means that It is Christ who affects the conjugal bond. When they freely exchange their vows, they say yes to each other, the spouses accept that Christ binds them until death in the sacrament of matrimony through his spirit. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. It is perhaps now possible to see what indissolubility means. What it means that the mystery of napsal human love is also analogically an ending, like uh, God's faithful love. It is faithful over time. It can be faithful over time. The spouses, through the exchange of vows, enjoy the unity of Christ's love for the Church. Hence, their union is not at the hands of changing emotions, ideas, or historical circumstances. If they married validly, not even the pope has the power to dissolve this union. They thus make visible, the spouses, make visible for the world God's fruitful faithfulness and the sacrifice Christ lived in order to prove God's love to be stronger than man's hardness of heart. Spouses can love each other in Christ's love for the church, be faithful over time, and become, in time, ever more merciful like he is, like Christ is. In this light, it is untrue to say that marriage's indissolubility as faithfulness of love over time is an ideal to aspire to or that it is a coercive law The bond and hence conjugal love is indissoluble, not because and only as long as the spouses want it to be so, but because it participates in Christ's love for the Church. Thus, rather than an ideal or a moral project, it is a gift that Christ bestows on those who marry in the Lord. True, it has to be lived, but it doesn't have to be obtained or merited after the spouses exchange their vows. Precisely because faithfulness over time is given to them, they can grow through the sacrifices that life always asks spouses to embrace to be ever more faithful. Rather than annihilating human freedom, the faithfulness of the gift, which is given completely, enables man and woman to give themselves to each other ever anew and to judge every difficult circumstance and temptation in light of Christ's love. The church, who is expert in humanity, has the task of opening man to God and accompanying men and women to the truth of nuptial love, which she, as the bride of Christ, shares in an overabundant measure. Thank you very much.
2: So let me first say uh, thank you to Emily Duffy and the Catholic Information Center for the invitation to um, share some thoughts about the sacrament of marriage. My title is... Marriage and Eucharistic Communion, Pastoral Care for Civilly Remarried Catholics. In a letter that she wrote in December of 1955, the Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor recounts a dinner conversation she had with another Catholic who considered himself something of an intellectual who had matured to the idea that the Eucharist is only a symbol of Christ. She describes her response as follows. I replied in a shaking voice, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. That was all the defense I was capable of, but I realize now that is all I will ever be able to say about it, outside of a story, except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. It is difficult for Catholics to find words that are adequate to express the mystery of Christ's Eucharist. Our faith in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament is a grateful acknowledgement that in the incarnation, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, God has communicated the very substance of his life and love. The mystery of God's incarnate love is, as it were, summed up and concretized in the sacrament of the Eucharist. In receiving this gift, we enter into communion with the triune God, and we enter into communion with all those who belong to the body of Christ, the Church. The Eucharist is indeed the center of existence. Because Eucharistic communion is the heart of Christian life, the experience of not being able to receive this gift is a source of genuine suffering. And the current discipline of the Church is that Catholics who entered into a valid sacramental marriage and then obtained a civil divorce and then remarry are not allowed to receive the Eucharist. How should the Church respond to this situation? How can the Church's pastors bear witness to the inexhaustible mercy of God? How can the Church help to heal the wounds in these painful situations? A few months after his election, during the return flight following World Youth Day in Brazil, Pope Francis was asked the following question. Holy Father, during this visit you have frequently spoken of mercy. With regard to the reception of the sacraments by the divorced and remarried, is there the possibility of a change in the Church's discipline that these sacraments might be an opportunity to bring people closer rather than a barrier dividing them from the other faithful. Pope Francis responded to this provocation by emphasizing the importance of mercy. The Church is a mother, and she seeks to heal those who are hurting. Secondly, he mentioned without commentary that the Orthodox have a different practice that they call oikonomia, which means, quote, they give a second chance. He then said that the problem needs to be studied further within the context of the pastoral care of marriage, and he referred the issue to the upcoming synod on marriage and the family. In the two years since, this question has been the subject of intense study and debate, and no doubt the discussion will continue during the next synod next month. One of the distinctive features of the 2014 and 2015 synods on the theme of the family is the desire of Pope Francis to involve all the faithful in the synodal process. Beginning with the questions that form part of the preparatory document and extending through the publication of the Instrumentum Laboris, the lay faithful have been called to accompany the Synod in prayer and in reflection. So in this spirit, my aim and what follows is to present the current state of the question on one of the key issues under discussion. The first step will be to provide some historical context. The proposal recently articulated by Cardinal Walter Casper to allow some remarried Catholics access to the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist is not new. Theologians, as well as the teaching office of the Church, have been thinking and writing about the implications of this proposal for at least 40 years. The second part of my talk will present some of the reasons underlying the Church's pastoral practice, a deeper understanding of the Church's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage, and the essential relationship between marriage and the Eucharist holds the promise of a renewed pastoral commitment to accompany Catholics in painful situations. So part one, communion for the civilly divorced and remarried, the recent history of the question. A good place to begin is with the Second Vatican Council. During the fourth session of the council, Archbishop Elias Zogby intervened the patriarchal vicar of the Melkites in Egypt pleaded that special consideration be given to abandoned spouses, and he suggested that the orthodox practice of tolerating remarriage remarriage in certain cases should be considered. Zogby's remarks provoked a strong negative reaction at the Council, but they soon became a reference point for a growing number of publications, a steady stream of publications, that sought to reconsider and revise the Church's doctrine on divorce and remarriage. What began in the late 60s as a stream of publications became a veritable flood around the year 1972. (laughs) This was the year a study committee commissioned by the Catholic Theological Society of America issued a statement on, quote, the problem of second marriages. In addition to urging that civilly remarried Catholics should not be excluded from the sacraments, The authors of this study exhorted Catholic theologians to rethink the meaning of indissolubility. Within the next two years, some six books and scores of articles would be published in the United States alone devoted to the question of divorce and remarriage. Exegetes, canon lawyers, and moral theologians approached the issue from a variety of perspectives, but there was a common thread. Each of these books, and almost all of the articles, advocated a change in the Church's practice so as to allow civilly remarried Catholics to receive the Eucharist. A similar discussion unfolded in Europe, especially in France and in Germany. In Germany, the book Marriage and Divorce, a discussion among Christians, also published in 1972, included substantial essays by leading exegetes and theologians, such as Schnakenberg, Joseph Ratzinger, and Karl Lehmann. Again, each of these authors argued for pastoral leniency that would allow, under certain limited circumstances, remarried Catholics to receive the Eucharist. So surveying this literature from the early 1970s, it's possible to discern the development of three basic arguments in support of a change in the Church's teaching and practice with regard to divorce and remarriage. The first argument is premised on a radical redefinition or abandonment of indissolubility. This approach to divorce and remarriage was outlined in an influential article by the Dutch theologian Edward Skillebeks, titled Christian Marriage and the Reality of Complete Marital Breakdown, published in 1970. Skillebeks writes, quote, indissolubility cannot mean that a first marriage continues to exist as a prohibition against a second marriage. Such a prohibition would leave indissolubility without any actual meaning, for it says nothing, realistically speaking, about the first marriage in question. If that marriage has, in fact, completely broken down, then, humanly speaking, there is no more marriage. There is no longer anything to which indissolubility or dissolubility can be applied. It's worth noting that proponents of this position often appeal, and wrongly, in my view, to the theology of marriage set forth in Gaudium et Spes. The argument in its bare essentials goes something like this. Gaudium et Spes redefined marriage in more personalistic terms as an intimate communion of life and love, whereas prior to the Second Vatican Council, marriage was conceived more as a contract whereby each party gives and accepts a perpetual right for acts, conjugal acts, suited for the generation of children. Gaudium et Spes speaks of marriage as a covenant of love formed by the spouses giving and receiving themselves. In short, the Church now teaches that love belongs to the very essence of marriage. It follows, uh, these theologians argue, that when love dies or no longer exists, the marriage itself ceases to exist. (coughs) The Jesuit theologian Theodore Mackin, probably the preeminent authority on the theology of marriage in the U.S., draws the final consequence of this new approach when he writes, quote, I recommend that the words indissoluble and indissolubility be abandoned. The second line of argument in support of allowing civilly divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion was set forth in a series of articles in Germany by Joseph Ratzinger, Karl Lehmann, and Walter Kasper. Unlike the proposal noted above, these German theologians all affirmed the indissolubility of sacramental marriages. Instead of calling into question the continued existence of the bond of marriage, these authors appealed to certain passages in the Church Fathers, that seemed to allow leniency in emergency situations. They also suggested that the church could learn something from the orthodox practice of oikonomia. And in this connection, they noted that the Council of Trent took care not to condemn the orthodox position. These features of the tradition suggest, they argued, that a new approach might be possible in our current situation. The following conditions would have to be met. first the individual must be willing to embark on a path of penance that would require repentance for any guilt incurred in the failure of the first marriage. Secondly, it must be established that the first marriage has irreparably broken down for both parties. Thirdly, the second civilly contracted marriage must must have withstood the test of time. When moral obligations have arisen from this second union, uh, children then and only then would it be possible and indeed just for the Church to make a concession in order to allow these individuals to receive the Eucharist. The third line of argument, which I do not have time to elaborate, sought to resolve the dilemma by means of an appeal to the internal forum, namely an individual's conscience. And this solution can take different forms. Some authors propose that an individual convinced of the invalidity of their first marriage but unable to prove that in the external forum, could legitimately enter into a new marriage. Other authors concede the enduring existence of the prior marriage, but suggest that the internal forum opens a path for civilly remarried Catholics to repent of past mistakes and approach the sacrament in a spirit of penance. Given the ferment in Catholic theology and the explosive number of Catholics obtaining civil divorces and then entering into new unions— It was natural that this topic would be discussed during the 1980 Synod on the Family. In the months leading up to the Synod, a number of bishops called attention to the urgency of this problem. The propositions confirmed by the Synod and further developed by John Paul II addressed the issue of divorce and remarried Catholics explicitly and at length. The key text from John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio reads as follows. Together with the Synod, I earnestly call upon pastors and the whole community of the faithful to help the divorced and with solicitous care to make sure that they do not consider themselves as separated from the Church. They should be encouraged to listen to the Word of God, to attend the sacrifice of the Mass, to persevere in prayer. Let the Church pray for them and show herself a merciful mother. However, the Church reaffirms her practice, which is based upon sacred Scripture, of not admitting to Eucharistic communion divorced persons who have remarried. They are unable to be admitted thereto from the fact that their state and condition of life objectively contradict that union of love between Christ and the Church, which is signified and affected by the Eucharist. Beside this, there is another special pastoral reason. If these people were admitted to the Eucharist, the faithful would be led into error and confusion regarding the Church's teaching about the indissolubility of marriage. Reconciliation in the sacrament of penance, which would open the way to the Eucharist, can only be granted to those who, having repented of having broken the sign of the covenant and of fidelity to Christ, are sincerely ready to undertake a way of life that is no longer in contradiction to the indissolubility of marriage. This means in practice that when, for serious reasons, such as, for example, the children's upbringing, a man and a woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate, They take upon themselves the duty to live in complete continence. That is, they abstain from the acts proper to married couples. End of quote. Let me pause just to explain the significance of the final sentence of this passage. Um, It's not quite right to say, as is sometimes said, that Catholics who divorce and marry are excluded from the Eucharist. Already now, they can receive Eucharistic communion if there are serious reasons not to separate, ...and if they try to live continently. So the the new proposal under discussion is not simply to allow civilly divorced and remarried Catholics to receive the Eucharist. The proposal is the Church should allow them to receive the sacrament without any commitment to try to abstain from conjugal relations. Okay, the next important development in terms of the history of this question uh, occurred in July of 1993 when three prominent German bishops, Oskar Seyer, Walter Kasper, and Karl Lehmann, published a letter on the pastoral care for the divorced and remarried. Referring to John Paul II's teaching in Familiar's Consortio as a general norm that, while true, cannot regulate all the very complex individual cases, these bishops from Upper Rhineland proposed a set of criteria that would allow individuals guided by a priest to decide for themselves whether or not they could receive the Eucharist. The same conditions noted above were specified. Repentance for the failure of the first marriage, the civil marriage proving itself as stable, commitments assumed in the second marriage would have to be accepted, etc. Under these conditions, civilly remarried remarried people could, in good conscience, receive the Eucharist without any commitment to live continently. Uh, This letter was quickly translated into English and French, and it attracted considerable attention in the press. The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith responded the next year, 1994, with a letter titled, uh, Letter to the Bishops of the Catholic Church Concerning the Reception of Holy Communion by the Divorced and Remarried Members of the Faithful. Citing both Familiars Consortio and the recently published Catechism of the Catholic Church, this letter confirms that the doctrine and practice of the Church precludes civilly remarried Catholics from receiving communion because their condition of life objectively contradicts the union of love between Christ and the Church. And the CDF also elaborated on the scope of the teaching of Homerius Consortio. The document says that the constant and universal practice of the Church in this matter is, in the words of John Paul II, founded on Scripture. Quote, the structure of the exhortation and the tenor of its words give clearly to understand that this practice, which is presented as binding, cannot be modified because of different situations. A review of the literature after 1994 shows that, for the most part, the path suggested by John Paul II, which calls for pastoral care enriched by a deeper understanding of the meaning of prayer and the value of sharing in the sacrifice of Christ at the heart of the Church's liturgy, as well as a deeper understanding of the Christian vocation to chastity made possible by grace, was not followed. So the question was discussed and debated once again in the 2005 Synod on the Eucharist. And again, Pope Benedict's Sacramentum Caritatis confirmed the Church's doctrine and practice as based on Scripture. Benedict also called for a deeper theological understanding on the relationship between marriage and the Eucharist. Okay, so this brings us to the last step in our itinerary. To help prepare for the 2014 Synod, Pope Francis asked Cardinal Casper to present a lecture on pastoral challenges to the family at the extraordinary consistory that met in Rome in February of 2014. The lecture was subsequently published as a book with the title, The Gospel of the Family. Following a preliminary reflection on the theme of the family in the order of creation and in the order of salvation, Casper turns his attention to the question of pastoral care for the divorced and remarried. He essentially restates the pastoral proposal that he had outlined in 1977 and in 1993. There should be a change in the Church's discipline, he argues, to allow remarried Catholics to receive the Eucharist, not as a general norm, but in certain individual cases. If a person is truly sorry for the failure of the first marriage and is ready to follow a path of penance, if a person cannot undo the commitments that were assumed in the second civil marriage without incurring new guilt, if he or she longs for the sacraments as a source of strength, how can the church exclude such a person? We must seriously ask ourselves, he writes, whether we really believe in the forgiveness of sins, whether we truly believe that someone who has made a mistake regrets it and cannot reverse it without incurring new guilt can be forgiven. In short, That was a quote, end of quote. In short, to refuse the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist to remarried Catholics would be an unchristian rigorism that calls into question the mercy of God. Okay, part two. um, Indissolubility as mercy. A number of authors have responded to Cardinal Casper's proposal, and there are many dimensions to this issue which touches the entire sacramental economy the meaning of marriage as a natural institution and as a sacrament, and the relationship between sin and mercy. In the time remaining, I want to focus on what I consider to be the most fundamental difficulty or weakness inherent in the proposal to change the Church's discipline. The difficulty was identified by Cardinal Carlo Caffata. What about the first marriage? If the Church is going to extend mercy and pastoral solicitude, it matters a great deal to know whether or not an individual is married. An interview with Cardinal Casper, published last year in Commonweal, sheds light on precisely this question. The editors of Commonweal ask the following, quote, When it comes to the issue of communion for divorced and remarried, you have your critics. Cardinal Caffara, the Archbishop of Bologna, was given space in El Folio to criticize your proposal. He has one question for you. What happens to the first marriage? Casper responds quote, The first marriage is indissoluble because marriage is not only a promise between the two partners, it's God's promise too. What God does is done for all time. Therefore, the bond of marriage remains. I do not deny that the bond of marriage remains. Later in the interview, Casper returns to this point quote, In no way do I deny the indissolubility of a sacramental marriage. That would be stupid. We must enforce it and help people to understand it and to live it out. There are two points to note in response. By upholding indissolubility and thus the continued existence of the bond, Casper is forced to abandon the exclusivity at the heart of marriage, both as a natural institution and as a real symbol of Christ's love for the church. Allowing multiple marriages or allowing conjugal relations outside of the context of marriage represents a clear departure from the words of Christ and the constant and universal teaching of the Church. In other words, Casper's proposal represents a change of doctrine, not simply a change in pastoral practice. And here it's it's perhaps worth noting a crucial difference between Casper's proposal and the orthodox practice of oikonomia, which some take as a model. The Orthodox churches tolerate and bless a second and a third marriage precisely because they do not uphold the indissolubility of marriage as an ontological reality. The Orthodox do not and would not countenance a second union while affirming, as Casper does, that the bond of the first marriage remains intact. Furthermore, Casper's proposal does not accord with the Church's understanding of indissolubility, despite his repeated assurances to the contrary. The ground of indissolubility is the total and permanent self giving of the spouses through their exchange of vows and through their one flesh union. Through the grace of the sacrament, this reciprocal self giving is a real symbol of Christ's love for the Church. This is why there is an essential and intrinsic relationship between the sacrament of marriage and the mystery of Christ's Eucharist, which is the sacrament of Christ's union with the Church. In an important passage in Familiaris Consortio, John Paul II ties together the idea of love as a total gift of self and the grace of indissolubility. He writes, Being rooted in the personal and total self-giving of the couple and being required by the good of the children, the indissolubility of marriage finds its ultimate truth in the plan that God has manifested in His revelation. He wills and he communicates the indissolubility of marriage as the fruit, the sign, and the requirement of the absolutely faithful love that God has for man and that the Lord Jesus has for the church. End of quote. Indissolubility, the fruit, sign, and requirement of a total and permanent gift of self that participates in Christ's love for the church includes and requires exclusivity. If a theologian or pastor of the church thinks it is possible to be indissolubly bound to another in marriage while allowing for sexual relations with someone else, he or she has not affirmed the truth of indissolubility. The gift of an indissoluble bond is at once the form and fruit of Christ going to the end of love by handing over the very substance of his life to the Father and to the church, and the form and fruit of a genuinely human love that desires to give the totality of one's life and to receive the Beloved in an irrevocable communion. Sacramental indissolubility is a supreme gift of mercy, whereby divine love indwells human love and allows this love to grow beyond itself, to participate in God's love and God's faithfulness. This grace enables those who exchange wedding vows to say in truth, I pledge my life to you in good times and in bad In sickness and in health, unto death, and to know that these words are true. The gift of indissolubility means that despite the vicissitudes and suffering that come with illness, human failure, and sin, the sacramental marriage bond remains an abiding source of mercy and forgiveness. The grace of the sacrament heals the incapacity of two human beings to love each other forever unto death. The indissoluble bond is not simply a moral ideal that the couple should strive toward or aspire to. It is an ontological reality grounded in the merciful love of God, a reality that encompasses the entire lives of those who receive the sacrament. As John Paul II and Pope Francis have affirmed, the Church does not have the authority to change Christ's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. If it is true that indissolubility includes and requires exclusivity. It is not possible for the upcoming synod to go in the direction suggested by Cardinal Casper. Casper's words from 1977 still hold true. Quote, "'The Church is not able to formulate its own casuistic law that is different from the law of Christ. It can only be faithful to the words of Jesus. It cannot simply pay lip service to its confession of the indissolubility of marriage and undermine it in practice.'" Toward the end of his papacy, sorry, toward, toward the beginning of his papacy, Francis summed up his vision for the church with a memorable image: the church is like a field hospital, hospital after a battle. Before doing anything else, we have to heal the wounds. Right? Heal the wounds. Heal the wounds. If the church is like a field hospital, the sacraments are the medicine that really contain and mediate the healing grace of God's love. But there's always more to the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist, which sums up our faith. The sacraments are not just medicine. They're more like the hospital itself, a place of healing and renewal. And more than being simply a hospital, the sacraments disclose the deepest truth of our origin and our final destiny. They open a space for authentic human life, for mercy and forgiveness, and for the renewal of creation. Just as in the Eucharist, the whole mystery of Christ's life and love is, as it were, concentrated and really given to the Church, so too in marriage there is a sacramental bond that can encompass all of one's life, even the most difficult and painful situations of illness, suffering, and abandonment. Even a marriage that has been deeply wounded or trampled on remains a hidden source of mercy and forgiveness, albeit a mercy that might entail drawing close to Christ's own suffering. God's love and grace remain present, not simply as an ideal, but in and through the undying marriage bond that is a sign and source of God's faithfulness and a real symbol of Christ's victory over death. To paraphrase Flannery O'Connor, if sacramental indissolubility is only a moral ideal, to hell with it. Uh, Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Father Lopez and and Professor Healy. If you have any questions, um, we have time for questions now. If you raise your hand, I'll bring the microphone around.
3: So I guess the obvious question is, even if theologically we know that that it can't be uh, something other than it actually is, what if the Synod does come out with a statement that uh, is in opposition to current teaching?
2: Well, my, I'll just I my initial answer is uh, it can't so I mean that, and it seems to me that um, that's the answer right now uh, we may have to talk again in in a in a month or a year uh, right right now uh, it, uh, by by my understanding it it can't um, the, the, um, now where the uh, it, uh, you know, we, we, we believe that, that the Holy Spirit guides the church and guides the church's teaching office. Uh, that's that's a protection from error. You can have a teaching office that makes some, some bad mistakes, that does things that are very imprudent, that says things in a way that are extremely confusing, and even that uh, says and does things that, that, that cause damage to, to the faith of the simple. But insofar as the teaching office of the church is exercised deliberately to resolve a disputed question on faith and morals, there's a protection from error.
3: In terms of... Um, I agree with you that the Holy Spirit guides the process, so I agree with you that it can't. <laughs> um, my question is, in terms of the authority of a synod or in terms of the authority of the teaching, if it were to come out in such a way that it was not in line, what is the authority of the That's synod?
2: easy. Uh, the authority of synod is... <laughs> Nothing. (laughs) Zero. A synod, simply qua synod, um, does not have any authority in itself. And this, we have to be very clear, a synod is distinct from an ecumenical council, which is an exercise of the authority bestowed on a bishop, the bishop's acting in unison together with and under Peter. Uh, A synod has only the authority delegated to it by the Holy Father. So you, you, you have to consider... To what extent the Holy Father recognizes acknowledges the um, th- the finding of a synod? To to but in itself, it
1: doesn't have authority. So, hence the uh, the purpose of the of um, gathering the synod right, is uh, for the Pope to receive some help in understanding the situation the Church is going through, and then to present to him certain uh, propositions as of. Um, Maybe mm, what in, in our case um, marriage and family life. Then then the Pope can determine uh, what would be best to do in 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 that case. No, but it's uh, um, it's more a consultation no? than than t- some sort of a congress, right?
4: I, I thought that um, ma- you know if a couple gets divorced, if the marriage is annulled, that would resolve these issues and the person would be able to participate fully in the mass and you know receive holy communion my concern is you know when i've spoken with divorced couples they say well i don't want to get the marriage annulled because i have children and that what happens to the children is it possible that the church is not educating people about annulment enough and you know what is true and what's not true that maybe this is part of the problem because i think that i would the annulment would resolve everything wouldn't it
2: uh yeah I mean it, it we we yes we have to be clear there's there 's a difference a radical difference between an annulment and a civil divorce. Um, an annulment is a declaration that there there wasn 't a marriage now uh, how how you communicate that to to a couple that has children is is a delicate pastoral question uh that I think uh, clearly the church can can do can do more in terms of pastoral care and accompaniment but I'm a a little bit hesitant to to think that annulment is the solution to the problem. You really have to think of the annulment process as not a way out of handling difficulties, but um, how to determine the truth of whether there is or isn't a marriage. And we can be merciful and know that young people today, uh, there are a lot of difficulties uh, that young people have in uh, giving an authentic consent. So we can have some sympathy uh, for... When when a determination is a declaration of nullity is given, but um, but simply opening up the annulment process that wouldn't I don't think that would represent any real solution. Uh, it's interesting uh, in in his book The Gospel of the Family um, when when Cardinal Casper uh, starts to think of a pastoral solution, he proposes as it were two two possibilities: a Plan A and Plan B. Plan A is opening up. The annulment process, uh, giving giving a, a priest in each diocese the authority, so you you remove it from the the juridical order and make it a pastoral question. But then he toward the end of that section he says, you know, this really uh, this really wouldn't work. Uh, it would give the impression of dishonesty. And and so then he goes to his plan B, which is what I discussed, which is conditions where there is a valid sacramental marriage. Um,
1: yeah, just one quick um, follow-up. I, I think that you raise a very important point. You know that ma- many times when we think about divorce, um, ch- children are normally an afterthought. You no, know, also because the the couple is normally going through such a turmoil. You know that um, they, they can't see anything else besides just uh, what they are going through. At least one of one of the members of the couple, right? I think that I, instead, if uh, one were to look at, um, at divorce from the point of view of, of children, what happens to children, right, uh, it would be easier to understand what's at stake in marriage itself, because right. uh, um, no, not just simply because mm, yeah, they they suffer much and then uh, they don't know where they belong and uh, how many houses they have and who they are, right, which is also true, you know. but. Um, yeah, looking at um, at the suffering help us see a little bit more what uh, yeah, that that marriage and therefore um, sacramental human love is um, is is more than what one can make of it feel uh, feel about it, right? Uh, that is far more at at the stake. No, but I presume that uh, n- next week there will be more on this. So I'll just uh, no. But I I think it's been b- this also looking at uh, the the question of indissolubility and divorce from the point of view of of children helps removing um ideology from uh, from the debate no uh, as well no which is which is very easy no when when you get uh, to these kind of questions
5: thank you
4: i just i have a few comments and then a question if that's okay um i actually come from the anglican tradition which has been going down this road for quite some time and it doesn't lead anywhere <laughs> um my for just first of all my experience is that the Lord really called me to the pastoral path that that John Paul II proposed um, long before I knew about John Paul II's theology, later on discovered it and fell in love, but um, it is entirely possible, and I bear witness to the fact that it is um, an immense blessing to walk that path and priceless um, in how close the Lord becomes your spouse. Um and it's he does heal, um, and he is sufficient to heal. And um, I actually know many others who walk this path, and um, unfortunately our voice isn't often heard, but um, oftentimes their marriages are healed through their own healing. Um, But that kind of leads me to my second comment about the sacrament. Um, You know, there's all this talk about, and the Anglican tradition is very sacramental, and I highly value it. I understand that language. And I hear all this um, talk about people getting access to the sacrament, and I feel like if the sacrament is sufficient, then if we wind up in a situation of, like in my case, an unwanted divorce, where I've chosen to remain faithful, to me, the sacrament is sufficient, I don't need another marriage. I, know, I have what I need. If I feel like, if we're saying, "Oh well," for pastoral reasons, we need to go ahead and let them have access to the sacrament. I feel like you're den- it, it's denying the sufficiency of the sacrament. Um, and the other thing. Um, regarding children i i have pardon me this is long i just have so much this is my life's passion <laughs> um if a marriage if a family is a domestic church when that when that breaks down to that ch- to the children in that circumstance that is the breakdown of their primary primary experience of the church and what does that do to a child's faith i you know, um, you're right, it's just not taken into account in these debates. It's all the pastoral care of the two individuals in the marriage, but the children are so often left out. Um, my question is, I I know of many within the Catholic Church and also in the Protestant Church that are just being called to remain faithful and recognize their marriage um, despite these circumstances and quite often actually having the marriage be healed after um, seemingly impossible situations. Is there any place in the synod for the witness of people like this? Um, is there any place for us to share our our story?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I I know that uh, at least in last uh, uh, last last synod, the Pope wanted uh, couples to participate at the synod so that they could also speak uh, and. Um, yeah, tell tell their own uh, life, life stories. So, yeah, he um, the the Pope uh, Francis is uh, is perceptive to this, right? Then, then, uh, yeah, there is sort lot of discussion at the synods. Uh, all the bishops speak; they have three minutes to speak. Then there's there are debates as well uh, among um, um, uh, language regions, as they call them. And uh, so, I don't know what. Um, capacity they will have to listen to these kind of witnesses. But I think there's the space for it, yes.
5: Um, in the first half of your talk, okay. Father Lopez, you said uh, you described a kind of more typical nowadays conception of marriage and then said that it contains the seeds of its own demise. And I was wondering, or I was hoping that you could say a little bit more about why that would be the case, because I can see how that conception pales compared to what you described in the second half of your talk. Or, I can see some of the problems that it might emerge as like um typical consequences, perhaps, but I was curious about your how you seemed if I was understanding the phrase correctly to say that the conception itself had its own demise in it, and part of my curiosity is because not just related to those types of marriages, but because I feel like lots of relationships uh nowadays. Operate under a kind of similar framework, even if they're not marriages.
1: Yeah, you, you understood well. Um, yeah, what I meant by by this is um, that the the most common uh, idea of uh, of love mm, that uh, is present in our, cu- our culture, I think, is uh, um, wh- what I describe as uh, romantic love, right? Uh, which uh, one one seeks. Yeah, un- understanding passion, um, intimacy, right? Now, all of all of those factors are are true, right? I mean, since uh, the uh, the church also, um, yeah, uh, w- that doesn't uh, uphold the uh, the idea that the parents should. Um, um, should arrange uh, the marriages of their children, right? So then the, the, the children can uh, can decide for themselves no and marry the the person they, they love, right? Uh, the thing is that um that that um I- if one stops at just simply a description of, of love as intimacy, feeling, or simply an agreement no between um between the, the spouses um everybody recognises that when that works it's great. But uh, that doesn't uh, work all the time, and uh, therefore one should accept uh, the fact that you can have one without the other right you can ha- you cannot have this uh, understanding of love as, as romantic uh, and then marriage as the coming together of two ultimately independent uh, freedoms and uh, not have divorce it just it just doesn't add up no but uh, since and then the it is it is said by many then it's uh, um, since this idea of love is better than what uh, our um at least worse than uh, society has lived recently, then let's uh, stick to it and then uh, well let's try to find remedies for when it uh, collapses, right? Um I, I think that uh yeah what what is um what is sought in here is true. You no, know, this idea of uh, uh, understanding reciprocal understanding and and then also um a true reciprocation no one wants to be loved for one's own sake not for the purposes of uh of who knows what kind of uh, kind of plan, right um thing is that um it, it is uh, it is in marriage itself you no know, that one uh, one finds and grows into into the truth of love now if one uh, detaches um indissolubility the from, mar- from marriage, if one thinks that uh, one cannot love, one cannot be faithful over time, one is deprived of the possibility of discovering that uh, uh, one, one is capable, no, of one is being created in that in, in that way, and uh, um, and then in the sacrament of marriage, one uh, receives the grace to to remain faithful over time. Because uh, m- most of the times is this um, is this fear of. Uh, of love of not of being betrayed or betraying no that uh, um yeah expedites the, the the way to um um yeah to disaster i guess no the uh, the other point i was trying to make is that I- it's uh, you see we think of um, romantic love in terms of intimacy but then how the relationship of the couple is handled is uh, basically also coincident with how we think what democracy is Right, so you can't have also one without the other, right? So it's very changed to it's very difficult to change one romantic love uh, and then understanding, um, man's living in society uh, in a different way than what we have it. So, I mean, just some a beginning of an answer, I guess. Thank you.
0: That's all the time we have this evening. Please join me in thanking our speakers this evening. I'd also like to thank our sponsors and benefactors who have made this lecture series possible i invite you to join us on september 10th for part two of our lecture series that's september 10th next thursday